Welcome to episode 38 of the Infectious Historians podcast. I'm Merle Eisenberg. And I'm Lee Mordecai. Today is November 29th, and in our episode, we're going to talk about a topic much in the news at the beginning of COVID, which is the role of animals in spreading disease. And then we're also going to discuss how historians talk about animals during historical disease outbreaks. Right. Animals can be quite central to the outbreaks of disease and epidemics, especially when they first happen. But then we seem to forget about them later on. But maybe an exception to this rule of thumb is the rat, which I think is more strongly associated with plague and maybe filth more broadly. I have a feeling we're going to discuss rats today. Our guest today is Susan Jones, who is the distinguished McKnight University professor in the program in history of science, technology, and medicine at the University of Minnesota. She's a historian of modern biomedical and life sciences with a specialization in the historical ecology of disease. She also has a very unique background since she not only has a PhD in history and sociology of science, but she's also a doctor of veterinary medicine. Susan has written two books, the first, Valuing Animals, Veterinarians and Their Patients in Modern America, from 2003, really combined both her doctorates. The second was Death in a Small Package, A Short History of Anthrax in 2010. And she's now working on a book-length project on the history of endemic bubonic plague in the borderlands of the Soviet Union, especially Central Asia, tentatively entitled Plague Homelands. More broadly, Susan is interested in how human interpretations of disease, both indigenous and scientific, have changed over time, how disease-causing agents have changed their ecology over time, and how the two have affected each other in social, political, and cultural contexts. I should say, since I guess we started off last week by doing disclosures, that I met Susan last year at Georgetown when we both gave talks about plague on the invitation of a mutual friend, Tim Newfield, and her talk was really just brilliant. She's also told us, I think over dinner, if I remember correctly, a rather terrifying story as well about when she was a practicing vet and someone brought in a cat that she diagnosed as actually having bubonic plague. So maybe we can talk about that later in the episode. In any case, hi, Susan. Hi, guys. Thank you for having me. Thanks for coming on. And as Merle noted, so animals really play a key role in disease ecology, which is a key field that examines how pathogens spread and affect their hosts with infectious diseases. Now, humans actually aren't the preferred hosts, so to speak, for many diseases, which do prefer other animals. Again, plague and rodents is maybe the best known example. But every once in a while, and maybe we can discuss specifics a bit later, pathogens, quote unquote, spill over from animal to human population, which is a key moment in the spread of infectious diseases, which Incidentally, Merle actually features centrally in both Outbreak and Contagion, which we've discussed several times on this podcast. And of course, animals have featured prominently in early COVID narratives as well, whether bats or pangolins, and of course, the wet markets. Yeah, I think that's a key idea, Lee. We often think of the human impact of a disease like the plague or COVID, but they start out in animals and only make their way to humans in various ways that we will discuss later. We tend to often forget the animal host of the disease, except for specific cases like rats. But it's an important area of study, both in the distant past and especially over the last century or so, as people have sketched out how this functions a little better. Before we talk to Susan about these topics, though, Lee, what's happening with you? Is your daughter doing better? So yeah, yeah, thanks for asking. My daughter actually has recovered. It's actually funny. I mean, kids really change very quickly, right? So a week ago, she was so sick, and now, I mean, 
she managed in a week to move from sick to healthy to, I guess, sick again. It was kind of a weird night in which she didn't really want to sleep at all. And now she's okay again. So it's, yeah, I'm not sure I understand why, but things are okay now. Now, as for COVID, so all schools are actually about to reopen here. And they're also, the government started this pilot program in which they are going to open, they have opened actually, shopping malls. They had a lottery for shopping malls. So all shopping malls in the country could have applied to this lottery and they chose six first and then nine. And yeah, those shopping malls could open just in time for Black Friday. This sounds like contagion where they let people in if they're vaccinated, like, since I know that's your favorite movie these days. Well, let me tell you this, it was not contagion because I mean, that decision was probably not conducted in, in the best way possible because they opened up these shopping malls right before Black Friday. So like the, the busiest shopping day of the year in those like six or 15 different shopping malls. So all those shopping malls were packed with people. So it, was, it didn't really work out as, as well as they thought it would. They also have something uh, similar to that with museums. So I, th I think they're going to open seven museums at the first stage. But what about you, Merle? How was Annapolis? And how was Thanksgiving? And whether, I mean, did you get any good Black Friday deals or are you kind of waiting for Cyber Monday? Unlike you, Lee, I'm not an unfettered capitalist who's always looking forward to these deals on Amazon <laughs> and other retailers. <laughs> no, I think my wife actually bought me some thick uh, hiking socks um, just the other day. But the numbers continue to get worse in Maryland. We did Thanksgiving with our pod mates, which are obviously the only people we can see, but there was actually kind of a big puss on that. So are these pod mates becoming your best friends now? Yeah, I mean, they're the only people we can see. It helps that they are teaching us a lot more about wine because they really like good wine. And so we drink lots of good wine when we're around. And the other positive I would say from Thanksgiving is they cooked the main part of the meal. And so they had a lot of different dishes that I'd never had before or in different forms. So it was actually kind of nice because right, normally Thanksgiving you do with your family. And so you do the dishes you always do and you know and you love. And this had a bunch of dishes that were really different and really cool that I would definitely do again. And so it kind of opened up a new way to do Thanksgiving. Okay. The other thing I'll say that was kind of nice or I hope made people mitigate the spread was that here on Thanksgiving day in the afternoon, there's obvious problematic reasons for this, but it was about 65 degrees. And so I hope that there were more families. We saw one next door to our pod mate's house that they just went outside with their extended family and ate. So I hope maybe that does something to reduce the spread just because it was so nice. So that's one positive, I guess, of massive climate change. And Susan, uh, where are you? Are you in Minneapolis, somewhere around there these days? So I live in St. Paul, which is one of the twin cities in Minnesota, and um, COVID here, you know, we, the Midwest obviously has been suffering quite a bit in the United States from COVID. And the COVID case positivity rates here over the last couple of weeks are actually starting to plateau a little bit. So we're at about seven and a half percent statewide, although one county is 20 percent. Um, for us, I think a big part of this has been, 
well, some side effects of states around us that are not being as careful and have high positivity rates. And a new study just came out from the Minnesota Department of Health, which was published by the CDC, that you know gives us data that shows that about a third of the counties in Minnesota have had COVID outbreaks that are directly traceable to the Sturgis, South Dakota motorcycle rally last summer. So this is a, you know, an issue for us. You know, we can't very well close our state borders to other states. I guess it's possible to do that, but not practical, especially here because here we do not have a lot of major metropolitan areas and therefore not a lot of um, high level hospital care coverage. So we do have an issue right now that even though in Minnesota, case positivity rates are plateauing, we're doing better. We've got a real problem with critical care bed shortages here, especially in the Twin Cities area where about 95% of our critical care beds are currently in use. So, right, and we're treating patients not just from Minnesota, but from all the Midwestern states around us. So that is our current problem with COVID. Now, um, we had Thanksgiving with our pod mates who are a couple uh, right around the corner from us. Marlene Zook, my co-author on one of my papers and her husband, John Rotenberry. And Marlene brought rabbit balls for Thanksgiving dinner. Wait, is that a serious dish that she brought? <laughs> it is a serious dish. That's what we call it. That's what her friends have called it for many years now. It's actually a recipe out of the vegetarian epicure for these sort of walnut cheese balls and bechamel sauce. But rabbit balls, you know, we're biologists. That sounds really good. I mean, I, I can say as a vegetarian, I can say that. But, but to get back to one of the things you mentioned earlier, so is there anything Minnesota could do with regards to South Dakota? I mean, or is it just like, oh, we're angry, but we can't really do anything. It's very difficult when high-level leadership, basically the two governors, are not in agreement on what should be done in response to COVID. So our governor is a Democrat. South Dakota's governor is a Republican. South Dakota has never had any kinds of major, you know, regulatory, you know, no mask wearing, no lockdowns or shutdowns very few, if any, recommendations about limiting social gatherings and things like that. Bars and restaurants are wide open. So this, I think, has been the issue, has been just the, the disagreements that, of course, as we all know, are broadly political. But Minnesota has a very good public health department, like well-known public health department, and the governor's been following their advice in this state. And so I think that's, that's been the source of the difficulty. Without high-level buy-in and agreement, there isn't much to be done in terms of mitigating COVID spread. Yeah, I mean, this sounds basically like another version of the person we talked to last week, AJ Herman, who works as the policy director for the mayor of Kansas City, Missouri. And so he was sketching out the different ways in which the counties and the states have to work together and sometimes how they don't. And this seems to be a an issue of where they don't, for example. Yeah, okay, so I guess after this introduction, we can probably begin with the interview. So maybe to begin this interview, 
Susan, could you maybe give us a very quick reminder about what plague or Yersinia pestis is? So this is something we've covered in previous episodes, but so just a refresher to our audience. Sure, most people are immediately going to think of the Black Death, of course. And in that context, plague is a disease of humans, rats, and fleas in port cities. But of course, plague has many identities and disease ontologies, but I'm gonna speak biologically now. And biologically speaking, plague is not primarily a disease of humans or cities at all. It's actually a disease of wild rodents and wide open spaces. So as you mentioned, it's caused by a bacterium, um, Yersinia pestis, and it's spread by fleas. Now in the wild rodents, it causes the buboes, those mild to severe swellings in the lymph nodes, and then it progresses to organ damage and death. So that disease progression is similar in the wild rodents as with other species, including humans. But some wild rodents have resistance to it and they survive it. And so that enables plague to circulate continuously in communities of these rodents. We call this enzootic, right? That's sort of like, you know, it, the continuous circulation in animals, what we call endemic in humans, it's enzootic in animals. And these animals include things like ground squirrels, prairie dogs, gerbils, marmots, depending on where they're living. They tend to live in burrows underground where the fleas flourish. And many of these animals also live in these large towns or colonies. Some of them are so large, you can see them from space with satellites. And that of course facilitates the spread of plague among the animals. So periodically plague will wipe out the whole colony. And we call that an epizootic, which is just like an outbreak in humans, an epidemic in humans. So it's during these epizootics that people are most likely to get infected, people and their pets, because we live, work, play, encroach onto these wild rodent territories. How long would these epizootics last? That depends. They can last for quite some time. They can either be very quick if they burn through a colony that's not associated with other colonies or they can kind of spread from one colony to another and just sort of spread out over a period of time. Now, usually plague runs in cycles, annual cycles. So it also tends to die down in most of these epizootic ways at the end of the summer into the fall, again, depending on the place. So you mentioned place, where in the world is plague today in these animals, I guess, that aren't all rats, they're cuter little ground animals. They're very cute, I have to say, and, and they are little. The so-called great gerbil in Kazakhstan, for example, I mean, that sucker's really small, I was surprised. Okay, where is plague today? So I've mentioned the Western United States and plague also circulates in gerbils in parts of Africa and Madagascar. Um, gerbils and marmots in parts of Central Asia and China and other animals in spots in South America. So humans have spread plague around the world and it's present on every continent today except Antarctica. And that's because plague has its own modus operandi, right? If the microorganism can kind of catch a ride 
to a place that meets its ecological requirements, then the plague disease system is going to take root in a new place. And it can exist there silently for decades. You don't even know it's there. And then it can appear or reappear. And the territory occupied by these rodents tends to grow over time. Okay. So in terms of cases in the US in humans, we have on average about eight cases a year, almost all located in the Western part of the country. The most endemic countries in the world are Madagascar and the Democratic Republic of Congo. And plague there is associated with poverty, right? It's a disease of poverty. Madagascar is, of course, the location of the last really big plague outbreak. That was in 2017, but the DRC had a small outbreak last summer. So plague is, you know, definitely still very much with us today. Are there any animals that are immune to the pathogen, but can still host the fleas with the pathogen? And that's the $10,000 question for many ecologists. Plague, I mentioned just a few of these species, but actually we did a study on plague in Central Asia and found 180 some species that can harbor plague. Several of those species have higher resistance to it. And so those species tend not to be the major ones that we associate plague with, but it's this whole complex community of interrelated species of rodents, some of which don't die of it. And so it continues to circulate in those populations pretty continuously. Many ecologists believe that this sort of widespread network of susceptible and resistant animals is what keeps plague going, um, maintains the persistence of plague in the environment, which is a very important point because if a disease persists in the environment like this, it is almost impossible to eradicate. So how do public health departments try to stop it? So you mentioned only eight people get it in the United States. How does that happen and how do we stop people from getting it? Public health interventions are gonna look very different from place to place. And that of course depends on politics and resources and culture and also how much of a problem plague is you know, right at that time. In all plague endemic areas, individuals are encouraged to just avoid contact with wild rodents and their fleas. And I mean, this is easier said than done, right? In parts of Asia, for example, marmots have traditionally been hunted for food or medicine or religious reasons. And this has been outlawed in many places, but of course people still do it. And there are occasional reports of plague cases. And you may remember that two people died just last year on the border of Mongolia and China from eating marmot meat from plague. Now, next door in Kazakhstan, the government kind of inherited the Soviet system of plague surveillance and prevention, and that keeps human case numbers low. So what they do is they go out into the countryside in the summer, they trap rodents and fleas and test for plague, figure out where it is, during the fall and the winter, they move into the villages, they educate people, they um, work on trying to remove rats from the villages. That may be one of the few times I'm going to mention rats, guys, sorry. And if necessary, they vaccinate people. So 
here in the US, we've recently had a case in the Lake Tahoe area. So some people go into endemic plague areas despite official warnings too. If you're hunting or camping, you need to wear insect repellent, wear long sleeves and pants, don't touch wild rodents, alive or dead. And important, keep your pets indoors or at least use a flea preventive. Cats are particularly susceptible to plague and I saw a case of plague in a pet cat in 1993 while I was in veterinary practice in Colorado, of course. I think I heard once about a cat that had pneumonic plague. Did I remember correctly? It's possible if it takes hold in the lungs that droplet transmission, yes. Very susceptible species like cats can get pneumonic plague. Yeah. The Aside from the story, which probably won't give listeners the graphic details today, but the other thing I always find interesting about these cases in the West, as Lee knows very well, is they love to write sensational headlines in CNN and other places that throw the word black death in the headline when one or two people are playing with dead squirrels, probably, is, is how they're often getting it. But that's for a, a separate discussion, perhaps, Lee. <laughs> Yeah, which I think we'll have at some point in the relatively near future. But Susan, so, so your new work is really on plague homelands. So could you maybe tell us where these homelands are and why did you choose to describe it as a homeland? Yeah, so I actually began thinking about this project um, when I was working on the anthrax book. I had done some plague research while I was in Colorado and, and saw that case. And these plague homelands are these endemic places like the Western US, but the Western US has only been endemic or enzootic since the early 1900s when plague was spread around the world by these infected rats on ships, right? The narrative we all know. The much older endemic centers of plague are geographically located in a broad swath of Central Asia. And this goes from the Transcaucasian region in Russia through what is now Kazakhstan into Siberia and Mongolia and the Qinghai Tibetan Plateau of China. And of course, the exact location of where plague originally emerged from is being debated today by scholars, by phylogeneticists. And I'll refer you to Monica Green's work for that. Most plague histories discuss, you know, how the disease has moved around the world. And the classic, of course, is Myron Eckenberg's Plague Ports, but also David Arnold's work, Gunther Reese's work. We have a whole historiography of plague now. And as interesting and important as these cities are, I felt strongly that the plague is just not only a human disease of ships and rats and port cities. So what if we turned this around and we decentered humans and queried this disease system as a broader biological phenomenon? And I wanted to know how did scientists even figure out this complex ecology of plague with wildlife and how it has persisted for thousands of years? And how did local people understand the disease because they lived off the land? in these areas and how did they live with it? Obviously they did for at least a couple thousand years. So plague's homelands in Central Asia also map onto the homelands of several small Turkic and Mongolian ethnic groups along with larger marginalized populations like the Kazakhs 
And these diverse peoples who are indigenous to the steppes and the mountain pastures suffered greatly during the 20th century due to Stalinist policies designed to force them onto collective farms. So I wondered how was plague a part of this terrible story of forced collectivization and the destruction of pneumatic lifeways? And what role did Soviet scientists play in this? So I was fortunate to be able to do field work in Kazakhstan in 2017 and to collect some oral histories and visit the headquarters of the Kazakh Anti-Plague Institute. Now, as an aside, interesting story, because plague microorganisms can be developed into biological weapons, this is a highly secure facility. And it's a little scary going in there. You surrender your passport and your phone at the gate and guys with big guns escort you around and watch you all the time. <laughs> the scientists themselves are very collegial and very welcoming though. And so, you know, it was a great experience in the end. But this institute dates back to 1949. So they had problems in the 1930s and 40s with large outbreaks of plague. Plague was the disease that really drove infectious disease research in the Soviet borderlands. And the reasoning behind it was central planning goals meant that the Soviet Central Committee wanted all of these areas surveyed for agricultural productivity. And if there were any obstacles to agricultural productivity, these scientific expeditions were supposed to identify the obstacles and give advice on what to do about them. And so in this case, Controlling plague also meant controlling the nomadic peoples by forcing them onto these collective farms and plowing up the steppe. And I've got a couple of interesting stories about that as well, about how this actually worked. Yeah, so that obviously begs the question, when one thinks of Soviet medicine technology, it's usually not the most subtle ways of doing things. So less one would imagine encouraging people to wear long pants and stay away from small rodents and more say DDTing the whole landscape. So is that to an extent correct? If it's problematic, how did they actually go about doing this in terms of how it functioned? Yeah, so um, I think first of all, information about plague was an important kind of currency local officials, these are very marginal areas, right? So information has to get back to Moscow and it's not clear that that's going to happen. Local leaders did not want to admit that they had plague outbreaks because officially plague did not exist. It was a state secret. Human cases of plague were not openly acknowledged during the Soviet years. And if you look at World Health Organization reports, they say, oh, the Soviet Union has had no cases of plague in humans. And of course, we've put together data that show for Kazakhstan, there definitely were cases. So they were definitely trying to do something about this. How bad was it in Kazakhstan? So in 1949, there was a major outbreak. And again, the numbers are just sort of at this point anecdotal, we do the best we can. There was a major outbreak in Kazakhstan that killed a few hundred people in particularly the eastern and southeastern and southern regions of Kazakhstan. And so periodically these, you know, these outbreaks 
would get back to Moscow. And there were two ways that the information could get back to Moscow. One was through the Narkomstrov, right, the Ministry of Health, but the other was the KGB. And the KGB were always looking over your shoulder. And so the public health officials and the KGB would compete to be the first ones to sort of get the news back to Moscow that there was an outbreak. So it was the local governments who tried to keep things secret. Correct. And as with many colonial projects, and this was a form of colonialism, internal colonialism, to use Alexander Etkin's word, which is something, by the way, that Soviet historians disagree with profoundly today, because they distinguish this form of colonialism from Western colonialism, you know, crossing oceans to conquer new areas. But um, the local officials themselves tended to be Kazakhs, and they tended to be Kazakhs who were assimilated into sort of the larger governmental structure. And so their main focus was promoting their own careers. And that was a big part of what they did about plague. Now, if an outbreak was identified, then everything went into high gear. And the Soviets were extraordinary, particularly after World War II in the intensity of their anti-plague efforts. To my knowledge, no other country has ever done anything quite like this. They went all out for eradication. So they fought this fierce battle to eradicate plague by attempting to kill all wild rodents and fleas in the vast borderlands, over thousands of kilometers of territory in the Soviet Union. They used the language of public health to describe these activities. They literally used the Russian words for disinfection and sanitation. We're going to disinfect this landscape. And then you could, you know, create your collective farms, plow it up and start to make it productive. And the way they did this is very interesting too. First, they employed tens of thousands of local people to basically walk this whole area, walk around and take spoonfuls of poisoned grain and put them into each burrow. So one of the scientists wrote back to Moscow, you know, we've got huge resources in the Soviet Union. We've got all these people. So let's put them to work, right? And the burrows of wild rodents then were poisoned with this poison grain, um, sometimes with gas, cyanide type gas. Then they sprayed massive amounts of DDT and other chemicals all over the landscape. And increasingly after World War II, they used airplanes to do this, surplus warplanes. Then they often burned the area to destroy any vegetation that might provide one tiny bit of food for any surviving rodents. And then finally they plowed it and they called this invigorating the land, right? And this was the way to revolutionizing Soviet agriculture and serving this goal, this central goal of controlling the local people, the local animals and the disease all at once. So that sounds, first of all, very Soviet, but second of all, did this work? I mean, so what's the end result of all of this process? So I was attending a conference with a couple of former Soviet epidemiologists who now were, had turned themselves into historians. And I argued that eradication had failed. 
because it did not absolutely eradicate plague. Plague is still endemic in these areas. And to be fair, they argued back, hey, we don't have big outbreaks anymore. We just have a few cases here and there. That is absolutely true. Plague control has been successful in large part because of this ongoing surveillance that keeps people away from epizootics of plague and the wild rodents. But plague eradication absolutely failed and they destroyed whole ecosystems in the process. So this actually reminds me of some of the conversations we've had in previous episodes about other of these large scale attempts to eradicate and or control diseases. I think the malaria case is one of those smallpox is another, although those were somewhat later, right? So you're saying that plague was, I mean, that they tried all these methods in the late 40s, 50s, 60s or so? Yes, um, really in, depending on the part of a country. So in the Transcaucasus region of Russia, it's closer to home, it's closer to Moscow. And so that area was disinfected, quote unquote, in the 1930s. And for 10 years, everybody patted themselves on the back saying, see, we defeated plague. And so this means we can just export this same strategy to you know, the rest of this vast continent spanning nation federation, union, and so they did. But plague returned even in the Transcaucasus region, right? So I think what they found was that the usual techniques that they had used were not working to completely control the disease. Now that said, scientists who had really thought carefully about plague's ecology, including um, a couple of scientists that my co-author Anna Amramina and I have talked about, a guy named Evgeny Pavlovsky and his colleague, Polina Petrisheva. These scientists had this very ecological way of thinking about how the disease worked. And based on this theory, if you removed one element of the disease system, right, the rodents or the fleas, or you wrecked their landscape, or you removed the bacilli, you removed the humans, you would interrupt the disease system. So they kept arguing, look, you don't have to wipe it completely out. All you have to do is remove one of the components. Yet, they also had to toe the official line. So in their reports back to Moscow, when we compare those to sort of their field notebooks and things like that, you see them saying, oh yes, our main purpose is to support, you know, the development of collective farms in accordance with the five-year plan. So um, these scientists who are living for years out in the periphery, right, are, are really, you know, kind of navigating these tricky politics in very interesting ways. I ask, how do these efforts tie into, I mean, do the people at the time know what's happening in other places in the world in terms of disease eradication? And then as well, how they're exporting these ideas of how to eradicate diseases, particularly obviously plague, but also others to the rest of the world. So keeping in mind that Pavlovsky and the others of his generation actually were educated during the last years of the Russian empire before the great revolutions, 
they had very good connections with scientists around the world. And in fact, were able to maintain those connections to a degree that kind of surprised us. And I'll use as an example, an ecologist by the name of Kolobukov. And Kolobukov was in regular contact with another ecologist, Charles Elton in Britain, even during you know, the terrible besiegement of Leningrad during World War II. So I found this note from him to Elton in the Elton archives that's written on a piece of brown paper, like grocery bag paper, something like that, in which he sends Elton some of his latest ideas, asks Elton to try to resend some books and papers that didn't make it through the blockade, etc. So they really are trying very hard to maintain their global citizenship in science. And that gets harder and harder the longer the Stalinist regime continues. And of course, the late 1930s are terrifying times for scientists in Stalin's regime. And having these sort of foreign connections is a risk factor for these scientists. Now, after Stalin's death, things change. We get the Khrushchev thaw. And American disease ecologists are able to visit the USSR in these official exchanges. And one of them who visits is Carl Friedrich Meyer, who's a disease ecologist and veterinarian who was the head of a major institute in San Francisco, the Hooper Institute. And he visited and was absolutely astonished at what the Soviets had been able to do. Meyer had been fighting plague in the Western US, but didn't have this sort of top-down, heavy-handed eradication set of tools at his disposal. And so he was absolutely flummoxed, just completely floored by what the Soviets were allowed to do and gratified to see how well it had worked. So from the 1950s on, what the Soviets are doing and their theories, Pavlovsky's theory of the natural focus or natural nidus of disease, which really was the theory that drove infectious disease studies throughout the Soviet period and, and even to some degree today. That theory really was revealed, if you will, to Western scientists in the 1950s with the thaw. So yeah, that, that actually raises two unrelated questions. One is about the intellectual communities. So would Soviet scientists have access to Western scientific journals, for example? Would they publish in those journals? Would they interact with Western scientists beyond the very personal level that you mentioned? I mean, that's maybe the first question. They did. And how I know this is I found a photograph taken by Carl Friedrich Meyer during his tour, I believe, in 1956 to the Soviet Union. He took a photograph of the journals in the library of Pavlovsky's Institute at his office. And many of them were in English, French, German. So Pavlovsky himself was somehow allowed and able to get these journals and really keep up with the intellectual community in many ways. And that also surprised us. It surprised us that there were this many connections still happening. I think that was unusual. I think Pavlovsky was unusual. He was able to 
maintain his status and position in such a way that the vast majority of Soviet scientists in the biological sciences were not able to do during this time period. And I think that was a combination of several things, luck, he was often out in the field when you know someone was looking to get him. Um, he had a very smooth tongue. He was political. He was well connected, and he was Russian, right? So, I think all of these things. He was also military. He was a military physician, so he was well connected in the military community. So, for all of these reasons, I think he may have been a little more connected to the Western world than some other scientists. Yeah, and, and if you mentioned the Western world, so that actually connects to the other question I had, which was about the Western United States. How are things looking like over there in this period? So let's say the 30s till the 50s or so. So the Western US is really where um, scientists first postulated that plague had spilled from the port cities where it arrived in around 1900. San Francisco and Los Angeles and had begun spreading to rural areas. And they found this out the hard way when hunters in Contra Costa County, California died after hunting ground squirrels of what was obviously plague. This was, you know, a, a big scare and a whole new chapter, as one scientist wrote in the history of plague. And so in the Western US, I think the difference is, well, there are a couple of differences. The first is obviously this was not a centrally planned government with central planning goals. These were state governments. These were very low levels of plague. This was a pretty sparsely settled area. And so I think in many ways, even though right much of the Soviet borderlands were sparsely settled also, these were groups of people who had lived for long periods of time, whereas settler colonialism in the Western United States led to a different sort of demographic in terms of population spread. So I think in the Western US, there was never this sort of pressure to disinfect landscapes, protect people from a disease that didn't actually infect that many people per year, et cetera. But were people concerned about it? Were they afraid of it? regular yes. communities living there? Yes, definitely. Um, it, of course, made the newspapers. And just like today, there are all these allusions to the Black Death. This is the same disease as the Black Death, right? Which Meyer and the other scientists often rolled their eyes and said, no, it's not the same, right? Many things are different. But in fact, people were concerned about it. And, you know, when those sort of spikes of concern occurred whenever there were a small cluster of cases or a couple of cases, that would lead to a few more resources and more interest, et cetera. So this Hooper Institute that Meyer was head of, as long as he was head of it, it very much was adopting a disease ecology way of focusing its research work. After Meyer retires, very interestingly, the next director comes in and he abandons all of this disease ecology stuff and all of this plague stuff and surveillance and zoonotic diseases and spillover. He abandons all of that and he goes, you know, in for more of the laboratory molecular biology approach of infectious disease research. So it's also a fascinating look at how these sort of fashions, these disciplinary fashions of approaches to disease change over time. 
does this, all of this have anything to do with biological weapons and the American biological weapon program that was probably under development at that time? So plague bacilli have long been considered candidates for biological weaponization. They have been tested, particularly during World War II. And many of the scientists who, such as Carl Friedrich Meyer, who had worked quite a bit on plague, were involved in the United States Biological Weapons Defense Program. And Meyer was in charge of the plague division of that Biological Weapons Defense Program in terms of recruiting scientists to come and work on it. So there are several things in the archives that probably should not be there now that were classified <laughs> and that tell us pretty clearly what Meyer's role was and who the other people were who were involved in this. The United States has obviously developed up until the Biological Weapons Convention really shut that down has developed biological weapons, including Bacillus anthracis, which is the microorganism that causes anthrax, and Yersinia pestis, which causes plague. And the interesting thing about plague is it can be very difficult to create a good vaccine against it. And so I think that has had the effect of, well, we have to keep working on plague because if we don't, we're never going to come up with a good vaccine and someone someday could use it, right? So plague continues to have this cachet that is out of proportion to how it actually affects populations around the world today and, and indeed how it might function as a biological weapon. So I wonder if in the last part of our conversation, we could pivot to a couple broader questions, Susan, if that's okay. And as we mentioned at the top, you've been trained as a veterinarian um, originally before you got a PhD. So how does that influence the type of questions you ask that maybe others don't think of right away? Yeah, I think having been trained to see quote unquote medical issues, not just from a human point of view, but from that broader biological perspective, I think that's made a big difference. And this is true both because of my veterinary training, by the way, but also because I sit in an ecology department so I have conversations all the time with my colleagues about you know, wild animal populations and disease ecology and how zoonotic diseases are linked with problems of environmental degradation. So, I mean, first and foremost, I am a historian, but I've always brought this more than human perspective to histories of infectious diseases. So this means that I view infectious disease as the effects we see when microorganisms are just trying to make a living, right? I mean, we usually only notice it when they're eating us, of course, or our domesticated animals or plants. But for me, the sociological and ecological questions are all entangled. So who's been affected? What's the situation from the microorganisms point of view? How might the lifeways, especially of rural people or pastoral or nomadic peoples, interact with this disease system? And what are the responses and actions, not just by physicians and medical doctors, but by these broader sort of coalitions of ecologists and veterinarians and zoologists and parasitologists, all of which were, you know, an important part of this disease ecology approach. And this way of historicizing definitely doesn't exclude humans. And in fact, it can highlight 
um, human populations that we normally don't pay much attention to, rural populations, et cetera. So plague ontologies are still a big part of this. And in my plague project, how nomadic Turkmen's Kazakhs and Buryats understood living with plague, right? Their plague ontologies and their cosmologies are just as important to plague history as the Soviet scientist theories about the disease. So what do we perhaps gain or lose by bringing animals more closely into historical narratives? So this is an excellent question, right? You, um, you find in history and in animal histories particularly that um, really this has changed over time quite a bit during my career. And the problem is, I think that the way humanities scholars have viewed animal agency, for example, over the years has changed dramatically, right? And in the early you know, 2000s, as late as the early 2000s, definitely the 1990s, animal agency was quite controversial. You know, bringing animals into history, it was very controversial because I think humanity scholars wanted to define agency in this way of having conscious intent and we cannot attribute that to animals. You know, that, that is human exceptionalism, right? Only humans can have this. Ergo, non-human animals could not have agency. And this was famously a major criticism leveled at the actor network theory of Bruno Latour et al. And my own first publication in 1997 took this up, right? I remember getting into a shouting match with a German sociologist at a meeting around 2004 and feeling frustrated because we just had different definitions of agency. To me, agency never required a human-like conscious intent, but was a much broader phenomenon simply about being an agent of change. And history is stories and change over time and all of those things. And better philosophers than I have delved into the intricacies of agency. But for my purposes, animals were and are definite agents of change in history. And I just wasn't fussed about whether animals' behavior was instinctual or conscious. Indeed, it seemed beside the point to try to make animals more like humans, just so they would count as agents. And I think this restriction of agency to humans is also a phenomenon of European thought. Animals are agents in the cosmologies of people around the world, especially those who regularly interact with animals and wild animals, which most Westerners do not. So if we bring in animals and award them agency, what we lose is human exceptionalism. And of course that can feel you know, very threatening. Animality has been the ultimate insult to groups of humans. It's a very common form of othering. Donna Haraway says that this discursive tie between the colonized, the enslaved women and animals, she says it's something like it flourishes lethally in the entrails of humanism, right? Wonderful words. So no one wants to be less than human, which is what this human exceptionalism construction threatens us with if we examine these discursive ties too closely, right? And it's hard to leave this artificial construction behind because we fear losing this existential source of our power. But that's exactly what more than human histories do. And I think we gain a lot 
I think we need to pay attention to the oral histories and cultures of people who actually live with animals. And I do think we can query non-living human beings like a microorganism um, or non-living beings, non-human living beings, sorry, like a microorganism um, using scientific techniques um, such as phylogenetics and things like that. And then I think we greatly broaden the questions that we can ask. I think it gives us a window into many traditional narratives such that we can turn them sideways or upside down, right? Otherworldism. And these are worlds of becoming based on alliances, events, circulations, entanglements, all the things that are central to many of our disciplines today that involve not just certain groups of humans, but all those other history makers too. And we just have to look for them and take them seriously and new histories will emerge. So I have to ask, would you take the next step or maybe two steps and see the natural environment as in the non-necessarily living natural environment, things such as earthquakes, volcanoes? And so would you say that those have agency as well? Have you ever lived through a hurricane? Um, I haven't, <laughs> but I'm sure we've all lived through um, various types of natural disasters, climatic disasters of one kind or another. And yes, I would say they do have agency to create historical change. I think that was a very nice way to summarize a deeply debated idea in many people's history writing and historiography. Yeah, that, that's actually a discussion that we've been having in our small, late antique field of history surrounding these kinds of questions. I mean, who, who and what have agency? But before we, we wrap up this conversation, I would actually want to ask you to maybe zoom a bit out or, or reflect upon the, the broader discipline, which I think this actually is a good segue into. So your work has really been increasingly collaborative over the last few years, and you've been writing to both historians and scientists. And I think that's still an exception to the rule, at least the way I see our discipline. So maybe if you could share with us some of the benefits again and challenges of, of writing in this way, and maybe transition from there to thinking about what this means for our training or our careers, really, as historians. I have changed dramatically in the way that I work as a historian over my career. And I think increasingly, history making requires more points of view than just my own. And I'm painfully aware that I was trained very narrowly, right, in the European scientific and historical tradition. And I was not trained as an expert in Russian or Central Asian or East Asian history. Instead, I really follow circulations of microorganisms, of peoples, of animals, of ideas. And I traverse my colleagues' territories only with their gracious help. And this is the only way to pursue and answer many of the questions that are central to the history of science, especially now when we're really trying to decolonize the history of science and several other disciplines. And without a doubt, there are challenges, right? 
a project of this scope and complexity, such as the one I'm working on now, is probably best left for after tenure, right? Maybe when you get to the full professor stage, but it's never too early to find collaborators around the world. And it's never been easier either with things like ResearchGate and academia.edu and search engines. And so the craft of writing together requires respect, listening to the goals and points of view of your collaborators and doing the necessary translational work. And I think Anglophone writers have a huge advantage there, right? Because English language publication is you know, prestigious and we have more responsibility to be the translators, the coordinators and to oversee publication. And I found that the process is slower to publication, right? But that said, it's also possible to publish in more places and reach much broader audiences. You mentioned Academia EDU and ResearchGate. So did you mean that you used those tools to find collaborators? So people you did not know in the past, just like, so you just contacted them and that developed into a collaboration? Yes, not necessarily that it developed into a collaboration, but that certainly I'm now aware of their work and they're aware of mine and we have a, a much broader network. It's helped tremendously. And so if I read a particular article, then I will receive a prompt saying, well, here are more articles like this one. Here are more people that you could contact. And, you know, for me, many of these people are not in the United States. And so it would simply be impossible without the internet to really be in any kind of interaction with them other than, right, the much slower forms of interaction that we have had in the past. But I think we're so fortunate to be historians when we are, and it can be a little overwhelming, but at the same time, it offers tremendous opportunities in terms of absorbing various different viewpoints and ideas, contacting people, talking together, and really experiencing that sort of synthesizing, which I think is, is so important and may result in actual collaboration on publication, sure. Yeah, this is probably the topic for a separate podcast, Lee. But, you know, changing the way in which you get a job and get tenure would seem to be a significant shift that probably needs to happen. And as you pointed out, right, I mean, you can't do this in some ways before tenure because you still need your book and that's still how you're evaluated. And that, to me, to then wait, again, being on the non-even tenure track position. But to me, it seems that that would need to change to an extent before these collaborations are going to be so common because once you get in your field, your narrow subfield, only certain people are going to want to collaborate and come out of it, as it were. Well, that said, if I may, I highly recommend that we historians abandon our usual solitary habits, right? And, and work more often in collaborative groups. One individual doesn't have all the skills to be able to do the kind of work that would answer the questions that many of us want to answer. And so, you know, I think we do all rely on each other to a greater extent, perhaps, than we ever had before. I co-authored my first article before I had tenure, and it was, again, a perhaps longer to publication 
trajectory. However, it turned out to be one of my most highly read articles. So I do highly recommend that we think about that as a historical profession. So on that more optimistic note for the profession as a whole, I'd like to thank you so much, Susan, for coming on the podcast. Thank you for inviting me. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, thanks so much. It's been great. So I thought that episode was really cool. I was reminded again of her great talk last fall at Georgetown from a number of the points she raised. And one point I thought was interesting that I'd heard people think about but not actually do anything with was her focus less on ports and urban spaces when it comes to plague and more about its other locations and how its effects could vary and be severe at times, but also at other points, not be. Yeah, I think what you're just saying is in one example of a feeling I had multiple times during this interview of how things that Merle, both of us work on or that we've had previous episodes on are kind of reflected in the conversation, right? So this, what you just said is the mosaic model, right? The, the notion that different places would have different effects of the same disease, right? So in, in the same pandemic, the same pandemic would manifest differently in different places. Yeah, no, I think that's very much right. And I also think, you know, this was also a really cool interview because it's one of those interviews where someone's really in the depths of their work, as it were, and so there's not as much published on it. But what she just, you know, showcased for us on the project was really, really cool. And, you know, so really exciting in that regard. Right. So it's it's more of a work in progress, but I think it allows you much more insight into how the interviewee speaks about these things. And, and I thought a lot of it did come through. Yeah, definitely. I mean, one thing I thought was really interesting was a question that I asked, which was not about her project itself, but about some of the global connections in the mid 20th century um, and how all these different people are thinking about plague in various ways, but all very similarly, right? So broad phases of public health, we might say, that I think Thomas Zimmer talked about way back in the spring. And that also ties into much broader questions, right? So. We've had multiple episodes in which we discussed, referred, alluded to these connections between, let's say, the global north and the non-global north, so to speak. And we've realized, and again, in multiple occasions, in multiple contexts, that there were always these connections between, again, the global north and the non-global north, whether in Soviet Russia and, and other examples of the mid 20th century, but we also had examples in the early 20th century and even in the late 19th century. And these would be the Middle Eastern episodes, for example, of really schools of medicine. Yeah, I think that's a really good point and a really good way to tie in all these various episodes together. 
in many ways. I mean, the other part I thought was kind of amusing, funny, is she did use one of our favorite anecdotes, Lee, which was the connections between people in Colorado getting the plague and the Black Death. Her point really contextualized that that plague is today and has been for quite some time. And, and it's actually interesting to try and think back and see when, when does it really become like a big thing. But the, the connection to the Black Death is almost automatic for the media for sure. I mean, all the way until today, right? So, I mean, you mentioned the, the CNN article or piece that, that made that connection explicitly in its title and about a year ago, actually. That was the last time I think I've seen it. Yeah, I mean, I've read newspapers from the first decade of the 20th century, which directly say the Black Death when referring to outbreaks of plague. So this is at least 120 odd years of people making that connection, which tells you how ingrained that thought process is in our imagination, our mentality, whatever you want to call it. Right, but it also brings up an interesting question, right? I mean, so if you have so many connections to the Black Death, and if we have, let's say, 120 years in which plague, so to speak, is connected to the Black Death, but plague and those 120 years has never gotten close to, in its effects to the Black Death, right? So I mean, how come that connection is still so strong and so so attractive and so influential today that whether in the 1910s, I guess, or 2020, I mean, you can still use that connection and have it create fear or concern or panic in whoever reads or listens to that. I don't have an answer for you off the top of my head, Lee, but maybe you should go do some investigations of that. So actually, Merle, I might actually end up doing that. That might be the, the first time I'm in an archive and in my professional career as a historian, which I'm not sure what it actually says about me, but well, we can discuss that at some other point. That's fair. Maybe you'll shed your fear of archives, Lee. So another thing that I was interested in is the conversation we had near the end about agency and specifically non-human agency. And I feel that there is a push towards accepting non-human agency, at least among historians, the historians we usually speak to who are late antique historians or environmental historians who work on late antiquity. So there, I guess, still is some kind of debate about that question in that field. But what's your take on this, Merle? Well, I think this is a probably much longer conversation than I can <laughs> give you in a in a twenty second wrap up. No, I mean it's uh, it's happening at the same time as a lot of these questions about agency are happening in, say, the history of slavery in the mid nineteenth century America. I mean, this is Walter Johnson's famous article on agency. It's happening all about the same time. So there is obviously this ongoing debate. I don't know if these two fields are tied together. That would be an interesting question. I imagine someone's explored that. But it does beg the question, and you can go multiple directions in this. And so it'll be interesting to see how this plays out as a field. But I mean, I'd say between both of us, my sense is that you're less comfortable in thinking about non-human factors. So I mean, I don't have a problem in seeing non-human agents as 
having agency, right? Or non-humans, whether animals or natural phenomena, again, earthquakes or hurricanes or whatever, as having historical agency. But I think, again, you're, I mean, I'm not sure if conservative is the reward, but maybe more traditional in your outlook. So maybe. Yeah, I'm not sure it's traditional or conservative. I think you just want to call me a conservative secretly. But no, seriously, I, I worry that if you displace humans too much from the story, you allow bad actors to get away with them causing things, right? And so I think of this in terms of COVID, right? There is agency to the virus. I have no problem admitting that. But, you know, why is it killing so many people in South Dakota is because humans are reacting to it so poorly. And so that's the balance I think we have to strike, for example. Yeah, no, that, that's fair. That's fair. So as we conclude this episode, Lee, I know you want to talk about your personal sports hero, from what I hear, which is Diego Maradona passed away. And so why did you want to talk so badly about, you know, your personal sports hero? Yeah, so actually Maradona is, so he's a soccer player, Argentinian, or used to be a soccer player, Argentinian. And when I grew up, he he was the equivalent of today's Messi, I guess, for me. And growing up again in, in the late 80s, early 90s, and we had all these stories before the internet about, I mean, do you know these stories about him? Like the hand of God goal and like the goal of the century goal. Yeah, you do know I'm actually the sports fan on this podcast, right? So I have seen these things. You're telling me as if I've never heard of them. I mean, you are the sports fan, right? But this is still soccer in the 80s. It's not as obvious. And I think back then, soccer was not a big deal at all in the United States. I mean, if you haven't heard of the hand of God and you know anything about sports, that's a problem. Okay. That's fair. I actually watched that again. I watched it multiple times in, in the past few years, but uh, over this weekend, I think I watched both those goals again. It, it's not as easy to see and it, it's not the quality. I mean, the video quality isn't great on YouTube at least. Pretty grainy, but it's, it's still like... Yeah, you do know, Lee, the key to that match and the whole World Cup in 86 was how much Maradona was actually being fouled because you could basically like really try to hurt someone in 86. Like now, if you touch someone, right, you get a yellow card, red card pretty quickly. But back in the day, you could basically just like hack at his legs. So there's a good <laughs> compilation, which I encourage you to watch on YouTube of just like the English players, like hacking Maradona throughout that entire <laughs> match. And I was listening to one of the podcasts I listened to, which is called Men in Blazers. And we can talk about that one at some point. Like. Why am I not surprised? But yeah, go on. It's two English soccer guys. It's a great podcast. One of the first I actually listened to. But they were talking about how the English players were hacking Maradona, just like taking out his legs constantly. And that, in fact, two funny things. One, they actually hacked his legs less than any other team during that World Cup match. He actually thanked them for doing that, for not doing that. I mean, yeah. <laughs> And that the other thing is they interviewed some players during the, the goal of the century. And they asked like, you know, how did you allow that to happen? They said, well, we were trying to hack his legs, but we just couldn't get to him. <laughs> you know, I mean, okay. So as a sports fan on this podcast, right. 
I think it's, first of all, it's like very unusual, right? So two of the most famous goals in the century, including the so-called goal of the century, happened in the same match and only like four minutes from each other. Yeah, no, that's fair. It's probably unusual. I'm sure you could dig something up about baseball or something that said something like that. But yeah, no, you're, you're definitely right. And the other thing, so as historians, I feel that we should kind of throw that in, is that this is right after the Falklands War between both those countries, right? Between England and Argentina. And, and that was like the subtext to that entire match. Well, Lee, are you watching the new season of The Crown? <laughs> well, you would probably not be surprised that I, I barely know what that is about. <laughs> well, it's, it's a Netflix show about Queen Elizabeth. And so the last season, season four, is now on the 80s. And so it's obviously significantly about Charles and Diana and also Margaret Thatcher. But obviously the war in the Falklands will be part of that narrative as well, which has already begun in the last episode we watched. Yeah, Merle, so thanks for that recommendation on The Crown. I guess you recommend that, show. But I guess that's also a place where we can probably wrap up this episode. So as usual, we'd like to thank the LePage Center for funding this podcast. And of course, thanks to Cameron Chertavian, the sound editor, and Vered Rekanati, our webmaster. Until next time, stay safe, stay socially distanced, and maybe watch some old clips of Diego Maradona. <laughs>